Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Um, I would like to welcome you today to our uh, book forum on an interesting new book, The Swing Vote, uh, by Linda Killian, our author. My name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. Among other things, I study elections, how elections are carried out, and uh, who votes and who doesn't vote and the implications of all of that. So this book falls well within the interest of the Cato Institute in many ways. And what we're going to do today, if you are new, we welcome you. Uh, if you're not, you'll know our standard procedure here. First of all, we'll hear in this forum from our author, Linda Killian, for about 20 minutes or so. She's going to discuss the book, its significance, what she's found, and uh, also, I hope, uh, some of the applications for the current presidential election cycle we're in. Then we will hear from our commentator, David Kirby. Uh, and thereafter, uh, we will have a question and answer session in which you can pose questions that, you, that interest you about this topic. I would ask in general, uh, I'll later have, uh, after we have the Q&A, we'll go upstairs for lunch. But I would ask in general that please turn off your cell phones uh, so that we can, uh, we're taping this and so on that it, uh, we won't have any interruptions. Thank you very much for that. Our topic today, I think, is really one of the, thank you. They don't go without fighting, do they, these cell phones? They, <laughs> they've got to be heard. The topic today, though, I think really is one that is sort of broached on from time to time, but is among the most significant of this election year, 2012. Keep in mind that self-identified independent voters in the electorate moved 17 points from 2008 to 2010. That is, they moved for Barack Obama and the Democrats in 2008. And then two years later, for a variety of reasons, including the health care bill, they moved 17 points the other way to eight points against the Democrats. <coughs> So they, in a sense, you could make a very good case that they've decided our recent elections and that they stand poised in this election to be crucial and essential to who will be president in 2013. I think independent voters also are interesting uh, for a number of other reasons. They are very attractive for people who dislike modern partisanship. Partisanship you know, it's very common to say we live in a polarized society, polarized around the political parties. Everything in this town often seems to be organized around the parties. But the independent voters, by definition, are loosely affiliated, if at all, with the parties. They are not the hardcore partisans. They are something different than what we experience in politics. And I think people often find that attractive. Finally, they can be and are thought to be independent, uh, important to libertarians because uh, once you study libertarianism for a while or you come to the Cato Institute to forums or read the material that's on our site at cato.org, what you notice is that the libertarian agenda is pretty broad and it doesn't fit well with either of the political parties. And in a sense, it looks like a, an agenda that might well be attractive to independents and that might well uh, have a natural constituency in the American electorate among independents. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. We have some publications both uh, on that point and in the works when I introduce David Kirby, our commentator. So this new book interested it. We were already interested in Linda, Linda Killian. I, myself and a colleague had uh, read her earlier book about the freshman class of 1994, one of the most interesting books on that topic. And so we're delighted to have her today uh, to come and discuss her new book, The Swing Vote. Linda? Oh, uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I need to introduce you. Pardon me. <laughs> need to give you some sense of Linda's background. Um, Linda is a Washington journalist, uh, journalist and senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She's director of the Boston University Washington Senator, Center and a Boston University professor of journalism. She's been columnist for U.S. News and World Report and is the author of the book I mentioned, The Freshman, What Happened to the Republican Revolution. 
which was a very well-received book. She's written for all the major newspapers, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and, and uh, magazines like The New Republic, The Weekly Standard, and The American Spectator, although I'm not sure there's a whole lot of people that have written for all three of those, uh, which may provide us some insight here. Uh, her television appearances are, all, again, on all the major places, CNN, C-SPAN, uh, Hardball with Chris Matthews. She's a former senior editor of National Public Radio's All Things Considered, a reporter at Forbes uh, and other uh, news outlets. She has a master's degree in public administration from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and uh, graduated cum laude from Boston University with degrees in journalism and political science. And finally, now here is Linda Killian. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here at the Cato Institute. And I think it is a measure of how broad-minded they are that I am here in a way. Um, I mean, I, I think the book is of natural interest to libertarians, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, they, the, as, as, as David mentioned, uh, they were very, very nice, as John mentioned, excuse me, they were very, very nice to me with my first book, which was on the Republican Revolution. Um, and I think, as he mentioned, you can tell NPR, Forbes, not so many people, you know, New Republic, Weekly Standard, you know, although I'm mad at the New Republic because they gave this book a kind of snotty review. So <laughs> I won't be writing for the New Republic anytime soon. Um, but I write for The Atlantic now. I write for uh, The Daily Beast a lot. Um, and I think that background kind of explains why I chose this subject matter. Um, when I did, I mean, I am very much a centrist. Um, and so this, the independent voters interested me because I think they are very easily dismissed by the media and by uh, the political consultants. Um, and as he mentioned, everything is organized around the parties. And I think this, it's 40% of all registered voters. And a lot of them are libertarians, or I don't know about a lot, but a, a chunk of them are libertarians, are registered as independents because they don't feel a natural home with either the Republicans or Democrats. Um, and oh, and I wanted to say, I hope there aren't any broken hearts in the room. I don't know if everyone has heard that Newt Gingrich has announced that he's suspending his campaign. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, if anyone, if anyone is sad about that, I've written rather negatively about Newt Gingrich um, uh, in the Atlantic in over the past year because I, because of my first book um, because uh, he the freshman you would think they gave him his speakership the class of ninety four but he wasn't didn't have the the he had sort of a rocky relationship with them um, and I. You know, I think the way I did my first book is an insight into how I did this book because I, I think I was very sympathetic to those freshmen and to their mission. I didn't always agree with what they were trying to do. I agreed with some of it. But I think people that saw, that read that book felt it, it was very fair to them. You know, I think some conservatives felt that I didn't sort of praise them enough, and I think liberals were mad that I didn't, um, that I didn't attack them. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the blurbers uh, was now, he's now the senator from Minnesota. Um, uh, and he was, he said that I humanized them. Um, so even though he hated them, um, and another and another one of the blurbers uh, uh, was Bill Crystal. So you sort of see, you know, that 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 I had sort of both ends of the spectrum. So I felt that they were a bit misunderstood, and I wanted to tell people who they really were. Uh, it was a real inside look. At, at who they were and what they were trying to do. And I feel like I took the same approach here in the swing boat, that I feel that independent voters are misunderstood and dismissed, and I wanted to, people to hear their voices. And that's another thing that I think is a little different from a lot of political science and a lot of punditry 
My editor kept saying, we want more of you. We want more of your analysis. We want more of your opinion. And I, there, it's there, but I wanted the voices of the voters to come through. And I think that is unusual. And I did a panel with, you know, you, know, you will see the occasional man on the street uh, piece about how are, how are independent voters, swing voters going to vote. But I don't really think the media, they are concerned with the horse race. Obviously, they're obsessed with who is Romney going to pick for his vice president right now. For heaven's sake, we have three months to decide that. And so I, you, you don't, they don't get into the concerns of the swing voters. They, oh, how are they going to vote? How are they going to go? And um, recent polling would suggest that they absolutely will decide this election. I, I am absolutely convinced. Um, they, uh, recent polling has shown the Republicans, people who identify as Republicans are 90% with Mitt Romney. People who identify as Democrats are 90% with uh, Obama. And so you've got the swing voters, especially in swing states. That are, that are just absolutely going to decide this election. And um, they have swung. And I'm not, I'm, I bet they will swing again. Um, back in February, they were a bit more for Romney. Uh, but just, you know, by a few points, the latest polling, Gallup, just yesterday, has shown that swing voters now are slightly for Obama. But again, I don't think that's permanent. I think this is anybody's race. Um, and I think the swing voters will make their decisions in October. I, that is the whole thing about being a swing voter. You, are, you can be convinced you're on the fence, and you swing back and forth. And they will decide, I think, based primarily on the economy. I think they'll watch the debates. Um, I do think uh, conventional wisdom is that a vice presidential nominee can hurt a ticket, can't necessarily help. Uh, everyone is talking about Rob Portman right now. Obviously, Republicans have never won the presidency without Ohio. Democrats have not done it since John F. Kennedy. So Ohio is obviously a very key state. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think what I found in interviewing a lot of these independents is that um, Sarah Palin did hurt the Republican ticket with independents. Um, because a, a number of the people I interviewed said, well, you know, I was going to vote for McCain, and then, oh my god, she doesn't know anything. You know, they, they, she made them very uneasy. So, um, you know, I don't see Romney doing a Hail Mary sort of, that's just not his personality. He obviously has a very different personality than John McCain, who was a maverick and wild and, you know, totally different personalities. So I don't see him doing that kind of a vice presidential pick. Um, so I, the, I, I want to talk quickly. I wouldn't necessarily begin this way, but because of where I am, I just want to touch on the libertarian idea. Because I interviewed plenty of libertarians when I was doing this book. They, a lot of them, are registered independents. And a number of them told me that they voted for Ron Paul four years ago. Um, and I think Ron Paul has obviously appealed to these kind of voters. I don't really know where Ron Paul goes now. Um, he has said he doesn't want, as, want to run as a libertarian candidate. I was actually on the Dylan Radigan show a couple of weeks ago with Gary, the former governor of New Mexico, Gary J Johnson. Um, who is the, who is the, I guess, the official, he doesn't have the nomination yet, but the, the official libertarian candidate. Um, so, uh, and then, of course, you have this Americans elect effort, and I don't know who they're going to appeal to. This is this, this is this online effort. So I think we've seen this independent sector, uh, which includes libertarians, being very dissatisfied with what they're getting from the two parties. And the voters that I focused on, I didn't focus, of course, exclusively on libertarians. I would say I talk about the center because I think the center swings. And I would say most of the people I interviewed for the book are libertarian when it comes to social issues. Um, they were very much, the government doesn't belong in those issues. 
gay rights, abortion, all this kind of thing. Uh, no, you know, come on, we're past that. That was most of the people that I interviewed. But I would suspect they like a little more government than the libertarians, the people, the people that are that are in this sort of center sphere. Um, but they do, uh, polling has also shown, Pew polling, Gallup polling, has also shown that the deficit is they want government, but they want government to work. And they want government to be efficient, and they want the deficit addressed. And polling has shown that for these independent voters, the deficit is, is as high or higher than for Republican voters. Um, right under the economy, much higher than Democratic voters in, in dealing with the deficit. And they're very, very fed up with the dysfunction um, and with the, you know, the sort of inability of Congress and government to take on tough problems. Um, you know, they think it's childish. And um, independent voters said to me, you know, if I didn't do my job, you know, we can pretty much expect that Congress is going to do nothing very substantial between now and 2013. Um, and one of the independent voters said to me, well, if I didn't do my job, I wouldn't get paid, you know, and they're not doing their job. So this 40% of American voters are looking for a home. Now, I mentioned the New Republic Review. A typical sort of criticism of paying attention to the independent voters is the idea that they aren't very significant, that their numbers are not very significant, uh, that they really are all just Democratic and Republican leaners. And they just call themselves independents because it's cool or they don't want to be attached to a particular party. Um, I, using Pew polling, using exit polling, using a variety of academic sources, I think my estimate is pretty good. And it is an estimate because they're swing voters, because they might, they, they might have voted for, Bill, uh, if they're old enough, Ronald Reagan. They might have voted for Bill Clinton. They might have voted for George Bush. They might have voted for Obama. They swing. They change their affiliation. Um, you know, um, as, as John said, they voted Democrat in 2006. They voted Democrat in 2008 by a slightly bigger margin. They, they went 19 points Republican in 2010. They weren't happy with what was going on. So I think half of all the registered independent voters are truly independent based on all these sources that I've mentioned. About, that's about 20% of the electorate, uh, a fifth, is truly independent. Now, they don't always turn out, and that is another thing that you know, people criticize. Well, they turn out in lower numbers. But here's the thing. In half the states in the country, they're not allowed to participate in primaries. So obviously, that dampens enthusiasm. When you're paying for elections with your tax dollars, and the government and the parties, or the parties, essentially, are telling you you can't participate if you're not registered, um, that, to me, is anti-democratic. Um, that is not a full democracy. Um, and I think in some ways, if it was happening in another country, we would be critical of it. Um, so uh, about 20%. And um, that 40% that of independents, uh, and two and a half million people in the last uh, two years, four years, have left the Democratic and Republican parties and become independents. And this, that 40% is the highest it's been since Gallup has been keeping track in more than half a century. Um, so I think it definitely reflects dissatisfaction. Um, they're the largest voting block, uh, independents are the largest voting block in the nation. And they're really tired of being ignored and unrepresented and not having a say in how government and politics is run. I use the metaphor of, I've used this all over, I, I think especially for the libertarians, this is not too racy. I use the, the metaphor of a one night stand. Um, and the idea that politicians woo the, the, the uh, independent voters, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of talk. You know, Obama will move to the center. I think we can anticipate. Romney just recently said he's for keeping the, the, the interest rate low on student loans. I think we can anticipate Romney's move to the center. Um, but once the election is over, they quickly go back to keeping their party leaders happy, 
keeping their, their, their uh, people who give them money happy, keeping the Tea Party and MoveOn.org happy, um, because these are who they see as their base, and these are the people they, they feel they are beholden to in between elections. Um, and you know, recently, um, uh, the chairman of the Bud Senate Budget Committee, Kent Conrad, was on MSNBC, and he said something. To me, it was a really stunning interview. Um, you know, he held a hearing on um, the president's, on uh, the Deficit Reduction Commission report, which has sort of was issued at the end of 2010 and promptly died. Um, and uh, although, you know, the Gang of Six, various people tried to resuscitate it, keep it on life support, but it was not embraced um, either by the president or by party leaders. He held a hearing on it last week, and uh, he was on Chuck Todd's show, and, Chuck, and he immediately then dropped it. He immediately said, uh, well, no budget, we're not going to forget it, we're not, we're not dealing with this. And Chuck Todd asked him about this, and he essentially admitted that the leadership had told him to cool it. He essentially said, until the leadership of both parties, really, uh, because with, you know, the, with all of the rules in the Senate, things can grind to a halt, even if the minority doesn't want them to. Um, the leadership, and until the leadership of both parties and the president want to do deficit reduction, we won't have deficit reduction. Um, the leadership shuts these members down. Um, and, you know, you heard that from Olympia Snow uh, when she announced a couple of months ago that she was leaving the Senate. It's very hard to be in the middle. It's very hard to try to govern, to try to actually get something done, to, to work on compromise. Ron Wyden from Oregon, um, had, you know, you know, he, he toils in the vineyards. He always has these, these bipartisan efforts. He has one on tax reform. He, you know, he works with Republicans, and it never gets anywhere because the leadership doesn't want it to. The leadership wants it to be about us and them, the Republicans and the Democrats. We're right, and they're wrong, and there's no gray area. Um, and, you know, that's not how you govern. Um, on the American people, I mean, it would be how you govern if you had the presidency in both houses of Congress, um, but I think the American people don't really like that. And I think we saw that with health reform. Um, when the Democrats did have both houses of Congress and the presidency, they paid for it in 2010. Not a single Republican voted for that legislation, and the American people didn't like that. Um, they didn't think it had cost containment. They didn't, you know, they just, and you know, the, the, the specifics and the details of health reform we haven't really felt yet, except for some insurance increases. But they just, on principle, I think, viscerally, didn't like the idea that it was passed just by the Democrats. So anyway, all of this propelled me into writing this book. Um, and I focus on four swing states. Um, all I, I picked them, you know, two and a half years ago. I stand by them. I, you know, I think I did a great job in picking the states. I, I focus on Colorado, Ohio, New Hampshire, and Virginia, which will all, I think, be very key this time. I didn't pick Florida by design because it's really big. It's really complicated. I could have done a whole book on Florida. So that was the only reason I didn't pick Florida. Um, and so I visited these states. Um, I, you, I have a lot of voters from these states, um, and I identified four types of voters that, to me, make up the swing voters. Um, and I sort of attached one to each state. Colorado, which is a very young state, the median age under 40 or about 40, um, very attractive for young people to live in Colorado. Um, I talk about the Facebook generation. Um, which are voters under 35 who are registered as independents in a higher percentage than any other age group. Um, what they said to me, and young voters are definitely libertarians. Um, they totally think that government doesn't have any role in sort of social issues. And what they said to me is, but they do have economic concerns, especially in this environment. And what a number of these young voters said to me was, I would vote Republican 
You know, I'm open to the idea of voting Republican, but they keep talking about these social issues, and I, you know, that bugs me. Um, so I think, I think, you know, if Republicans want to broaden their base beyond Southern white guys, you know, which they definitely have locked up, um, I, I, I think that they need to think about this. Um, so that was one group. Obviously, Obama. This is a natural constituency for him. They voted in a, an incredibly high percentage for him. I was teaching at the time. Um, uh, John mentioned that I was, I was running the Boston University Washington Center. My students were so enthusiastic about Obama. And it wasn't, you know, Obama didn't run an incredibly substantive campaign. It wasn't on the, they liked the newness. They liked, you know, there was a lot about him that they liked. Um, and obviously, he's, you saw, he was in um, North Carolina yesterday at a, at a college, um, UNC, I think he was at. Um, he's, he's, working, he's working it. You know, he knows that he wants that constituency again this time around. I, I feel certain they won't turn out in the kind of numbers they did four years ago because they're disillusioned with what has happened. Another group that I talk about in Ohio are the America First Democrats. These are the Reagan Democrats. Um, I gave them a new name, and you know, Ronald Reagan was president a long time ago, and I wanted to freshen it up. Um, these, would, these would be male voters, um, middle, lower middle class, working class, uh, very conser more conservative on social issues. Um, and, uh, but, you know, very concerned about trade issues. They've seen their jobs shipped overseas. Um, very patriotic. That's what they loved about Ronald Reagan. Um, they didn't go for Barack Obama uh, in 2008. I contend, and not everyone agrees with me on this, and we'll see. We won't know until the election. I contend this group is in play. Uh, they, they liked Bill Clinton. Um, they totally liked Bill Clinton. Um, and we had a primary in Pennsylvania yesterday in which a Democratic primary, both, uh, you know, in which a moderate Democrat, Bill Clinton made an endorsement, the candidate he endorsed, there were two incumbents because of redistricting running against each other, his candidate won in an area that I think would have a lot of America first Democrats. Um, uh, I think the anti-union efforts of the Republican Party in states like Ohio and Wisconsin have stirred this group up, at least the union members. And they, I've interviewed them, policemen, firefighters, and they, Romney is not a natural for this group. Um, everything, you know, his, his elitism and his wealth and his comments, his Swiss bank accounts and Cayman Island bank accounts and his comments, I, I just don't think he, they will feel a natural affinity to him. Um, the, another group I, I, I talk about, especially in New England, but, but all over the country they exist, are NPR Republicans. Um, these are, again, I would say lean to the libertarian philosophy. They are more socially moderate Republicans, not afraid to admit they listen to NPR, um, and, uh, but fiscally conservative. Um, they were turned off by the Democratic, uh, the Republican spending and the mismanagement in the Bush administration, and some of them voted for Barack Obama in 2008. But they've been very, they were turned off by health reform, they've been turned off by the big government approach, and there's sort of general lack of leadership. They're totally in play. I would suspect they'll vote for Romney this time. Um, he's a natural for them. And then the last group are what I call the Starbucks moms and dads. This is the, the huge group. These are the suburban voters. More than 50% of all Americans live in suburbs and exurbs. Probably many of you do. Um, and I talk about them in relation to Virginia. Um, and the suburbs, the northern tier in Virginia has very much decided which way Virginia will vote. Um, you know, you've got your conservative southern tier, you've got some of the cities, um, and then the, the suburbs decide how the state votes. And I think the Senate race in Virginia will be very much a barometer. If I've heard other pundits say this, whoever carries the presidential race in Virginia, I think that candidate will win the Senate race as well um, in terms of coattails. Um, 
So those are my voters. You hear their voices in the book. I think it's a good read. Um, I mean, I think on some level, some of the criticism has almost been that it's too good a read. I mean, I, I wrote it to be simple. I wrote it to be fun. I wrote it to be, I didn't write it for political scientists, although some of them use it in their classes. It provides the voting. It's not all stats, you know. It provides the, 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 what the voters think and feel. Um, and um, I think groups like No Labels, groups like, um, No Labels is kind of an insidery group. Um, groups like um, Americans Elect, um, I'm not, again, I'm not really sure where they're coming from. They haven't generated much interest. Um, Buddy Romer is the, has, is the most well-known and the top candidate at the moment. He, I'm on Twitter. If any of you are on Twitter, by the way, you can follow me on Twitter. That would be great. I'm Linda J. Killian on Twitter. And Romer, I think today, is, is having like a Twitter town hall or something. He's really encouraging people to support him as the candidate for Americans elect. But it hasn't generated much excitement. Um, I don't know if it will. They had $35 million, which is a lot of money. They're already on the ballot in half of the states in the country. I suspect there'll be upwards of 45 states that they will qualify on the ballot. And if they get a certain amount of polling, they can also participate in the debates if they hit certain marks in polling in the fall. Um, so how these voters are going to go uh, is, is definitely up for grabs. I really hope they get active and involved and make their voices heard. Um, I think it will take a, a bit of a revolution to, to fix our broken system. And I, I think on some level the voters are ahead of the politicians on this, but they, you know, the center, they're busy taking their kids to soccer practice, they're busy living their lives, and they, I think they feel a certain amount of frustration and a certain amount of what can I do. Um, but you see the stirrings of it online in various groups. Um, and I have some prescriptions that I can talk about in the questioning. Uh, I think they're fairly modest um, in terms of what I would suggest in reforming the system. Um, but I appreciate your attention. Um, I appreciate being here. Um, uh, I look forward to, to David's remarks and to taking your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Uh, I can only remark that uh, Governor Gary Johnson blurred my second book, so you'll have to decide whether that means he, he would be a good president or not. I, my view is he, it's a definite sign he would be a good president. Um, our commentator today is my friend David Kirby, um, whom I've worked with uh, over the years and has been affiliated in one way or the other with Cato for now over a decade, which is pretty striking to, to us. Uh, David is now Vice President of Development, uh, managing FreedomWorks' growing fundraising operations, the, the FreedomWorks uh, undertaking. He's also a policy analyst here at Cato, and he, where he works on libertarian voting preferences in the Tea Party. Before joining FreedomWorks, David served as campaign executive De director for the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason, where he oversaw a large and successful fundraising effort. Um, and before that, he was executive director of America's Future Foundation, the premier organization for young conservative and libertarian leaders, and something I didn't know until today, and I got his bio, and his misspent youth, David interned for Senator Ted Kennedy. So maybe he can have some stories about that. Uh, one would presume there are stories. Uh, David's publications, as I mentioned, uh, he works in the Tea Party and libertarian vote preferences, uh, include the libertarian vote, Libertarian vote in the age of Obama, both here at Cato and so therefore available on the Cato website for free for download. And he's now working on a, an additional uh, piece now with my colleague Emily Eakins called The Libertarian Roots of the Tea Party, which has, uh, I've read an early version of that. Very interesting and great potential there. Like Linda, he has been published in all the leading uh, online uh, publications, and also that ones that are not just online, including The Economist, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and so on. And like Linda, David holds a master's in, uh, in his case, from public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.
Uh, David was a college debater, and he also has a bachelor's degree in rhetoric from Bates College. I, too, was a college debater, but there's a difference between us, I bet, which is I think David was a good college debater. David Kirby. Well, thank you, John, for inviting me. And uh, thank you, Linda, for writing this book. I really enjoyed it. Um, I kind of, like Linda, find myself as sort of a swing voter that she sort of models in her book. Uh, and just a couple funny stories about my Ted Kennedy experience, because uh, it really did shape my ideological drifting. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I went over to work for, uh, for Ted Kennedy as an intern. And basically, as an intern for Ted Kennedy, you had two jobs. One, you walked his Irish terrier named Blarney. And two, you cleaned up his hideaway in the Capitol, which was often filled with empty whiskey glasses that he was entertaining with, uh, with many people. And so you kind of have a jaded view of the way politics works for working for Ted Kennedy. So it wasn't until college debate when I found out about libertarian ideas. And I actually realized that the kind of socially liberal stuff that I heard about in Ted Kennedy's office and some of this fiscally conservative kind of ideas I learned about through economics had a name. And that name was libertarianism. Uh, so that's how I kind of arrived here and why I've been looking in my own research at these sort of libertarian voters that very much overlap uh, Linda's writing on the swing vote. So I wanted to get three points on the table here about, uh, about her book to try to get the conversation going. Uh, and first is that, uh, well, Linda acknowledges it, she might not fully realize the extent to which libertarian voters really are the independent voters that she's writing about in the book. She names a couple categories, but I'll try to give some evidence in the political science for how large a group this libertarian swing vote is. Uh, second, and this is a slightly more critical point, uh, that I think Linda gives short shrift to the Tea Party. She sort of dismisses them as this group that's definitely more right-leaning, and, and sort of the caricature is that this is a revival of the religious right that's driving the Republican Party rightward. But if you actually look at the data, a lot of those Tea Partiers are libertarians themselves and are actually independents. So when she said she was looking for this revolution that's going to kind of take back politics, in some ways I think she missed a little bit of that revolution by not focusing as much on Tea Party voters in her interviews in some of these states. And the third and final point I want to make is about the no labels movement uh, and the sort of America's elect movement, uh, which I, I take a pretty skeptical view that that's going to get traction, uh, even though Linda is a little sympathetic, especially in the last chapter, that this may well have promise. Okay, so let's get to the libertarian vote and why this is much more of an independent group than you may realize. So David Bose and I have done two studies now where we look at political science data uh, sets and try to estimate the rough percentage of the public that would be uh, considered libertarian. Now, I use a slightly uh, more broad definition of libertarian than maybe Linda does. I'm not talking about self-identified uh, libertarian voters who know Ron Paul, have read Ayn Rand, and have read F.A. Hayek, these sort of motivated uh, purists, many of whom are our colleagues here at the Cato Institute, uh, some of you probably in this room. That's not exactly the libertarian group I'm talking about. I'm talking about a slightly broader group that could be called fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Different than liberals, different than conservatives, they kind of don't like Democrats, they kind of don't like Republicans. And that group, if you estimate them on public opinion polls, is about 15 to 20% of the public. And we've looked at uh, good data sets from Pew, from Gallup, from uh, University of Michigan. And it turns out when you look at that group, that larger group of libertarians, they swing dramatically from election to election. So in 2000, this group voted for Bush at about 72%. And you could understand why, because at the time, Bush sounded pretty uh, small government. It sounded like he wanted to get out of your life. And it turned out Bush didn't really do that. He ended up spending an awful lot. He, he got into all sorts of mischief with social issues. And by 2004, this libertarian group actually swung away from Bush by 24 percentage points. Now, to put that in perspective, you heard John talk about uh, the group of independents, how they swing away from Obama from 2008 to 2010, and the swing percentage was 17 points. So this is actually a larger swing than you see with the independents more generally between 2008 and 2000, um, uh, 2010. And in 2006, once again, those libertarians swung dramatically away from Republicans. 
When it came to 2008, they swung back to Republicans and voted 77% for McCain. So basically, you see this group of voters going one way, going another way. The swing is about 24, maybe it's 31 percentage points, uh, one way or the other. It's the classic swing vote. Now, when David Bowes and I did these studies, all we had to go on was data sets. We were data geeks. We were looking at the political science. And so it actually has been a real useful service for Linda's book because she goes and talks to real flesh and blood people who sound like these libertarians. Now, why wouldn't Linda just call the book about the libertarians? Why, why is she just calling them all independents? Well, the most interesting thing about the book to me is that many of these people don't use that word libertarian to describe themselves. And that is actually exactly what we find in the data. So most polls don't actually offer you a choice of the word libertarian. They say, are you liberal, are you conservative, or moderate? The word libertarian never shows up. Now, if you actually try to include a word libertarian and offer people the option, are you liberal, are you conservative, are you libertarian, are you progressive, only 6% will say that they're libertarian. That's the small, kind of narrow group I was describing before. Most libertarians, the larger group, consider themselves conservative or moderate. And so when Linda's out interviewing, it's not surprising that a lot of those people will call themselves moderate or maybe independent, when in fact, if you actually look at the way they're, they're thinking about issues, they really are libertarian. So I would actually argue that, the, uh, that many of those independent, those moderate, those centrist style voters are actually the more kind of broad libertarians that we're talking about in her book. And, and that's clear from the categories of the voters that she talks about. She said the NPR Republicans, these folks in New Hampshire who are fiscally conservative but socially moderate to liberal, that they're absolutely libertarians. I wouldn't say all the Facebook generation is libertarian, but certainly a large chunk of that. Uh, it's not surprising that Ron Paul's um, voters are uh, super libertarian, and he's, and he's packing college campuses. Uh, even when he's lost, it's all, it's all over. It's going to be Romney and the weak uh, the week that we hear that Romney's got the nomination sewed up, 8,500 students show up at Berkeley to hear Ron Paul give a seminar on Austrian economics. It's like, well, what, what's up with that? Well, those are the Facebook generation folks that I think are very libertarian. Um, so uh, in essence, I think this independent group is surprisingly overlaid with this, with this libertarian group. Uh, the second point I wanted to make is about the Tea Party, which I think is much more independent than Linda realizes. Um, she says on page 32 in her book, comparing kind of Tea Party voters to some of the other swing blocks that they're, um, uh, and one swing block in particular is this Perot voters. She says that they're less conservative and more socially libertarian. This is Perot voters than Tea Party folks. Tea Party folks are trying to push the GOP to the right and uh, defeat any Republican who's deemed uh, uh, insufficiently committed to the cause. That's how she kind of characterizes the Tea Party folks. But I guess what, uh, what I found lacking was what is the cause that these Tea Party folks are looking for? It actually sounds a lot like the cause of independent voters that she finds in, in other parts of the book. Um, and it turns out if you look at data, uh, they really are a, a much more independent group. Uh, Washington Post just did a poll. You know, there's a lot of narrative in the media about the Tea Party is declining. People have gotten sick of it. It's kind of going away. We're not quite, quite sure what's going on. Yet, even still today, 41% of the public uh, support the Tea Party by Washington Post's poll that they released just last week. And if you actually ask even further uh, for people who don't support the Tea Party, do you lean towards the Tea Party, you get upwards of 50% of the public that uh, lean towards the Tea Party. Rasmussen did a poll where it showed that 54% of people uh, either support or lean towards the Tea Party. That's more than half of the country. And when you actually look at who those people are, half of those are independent. And that doesn't seem to be fit with the caricature we hear about this Tea Party. It's ultra religious, religious right, or it's, it's this very um, you know, uh, rightward drifting force in the Republican Party but a lot of these Tea Party folks actually think of themselves as independent. Now, uh, John talked about a study that we're just about to release, and we tried to look at those Tea Party voters and cut them in half because there's so many people in that cluster of 41% that uh, it's not easy to talk about them as a group. So what we asked ourselves is, 
know, maybe there is a religious right, kind of socially conservative part of the Tea Party, and maybe there's a more libertarian part of the Tea Party. What, what does it look like? And it turns out, if you do some uh, analysis on the data, it's about split. The Tea Party's actually split between libertarian folks and more conservative folks. The libertarian half of the Tea Party leans independent. The conservative half leans more Republican. The libertarian half is much more angry at the GOP, and the conservative half actually is much more supportive of the GOP. So if you look at the libertarian half of the Tea Party, suddenly you start to see that there's an overlap between this independent-minded group of voters who are angry as heck about uh, Democrats and Republicans and call themselves Tea Party supporters, even though they might be more libertarian or independent. Now, uh, why does this matter? Uh, I would argue that this group, this sort of libertarian-minded Tea Party group, this, this that overlays the, um, uh, the independents, may well be the most important swing vote in this election. Now, that may sound crazy, because aren't the Tea Party guys are all going to go out and vote against Obama? Maybe, maybe not. There's three ways to think about the swing vote. And uh, Linda, in her book, tries to talk about the definitions academics give you. One definition is the party switchers. Those are the folks like the libertarian vote I, I, that I talked about. They're people who actually vote for Democrats, and then they actually vote for Republicans in different election cycles. They're true swing vote. They're, sw they're swingers. Uh, the second category would be people who are not sure whether they're going to show up or not. They're so annoyed or ambivalent about the process that they may stay home or not. That kind of swing vote, those people who actually can change an election whether they show up or not, that's, I think, the category of people who the Tea Party libertarians fall into. It's not yet clear that they're going to show up. Now, why do I say that? Uh, Romney has not sealed a deal with this group of voters. Uh, they were very annoyed that he was the best option in the Republican primaries. And in fact, you saw a suppression of voter turnout. Through the first eight primaries, voter turnout among the Republican candidates was down 10% compared to 2008. And that's really surprising, because with all those candidates, with all this energy, with everybody kind of talking about the Republican uh, primary, 10% fewer voters showed up in 2012 than in 2008 in the Republican primaries? Yes. And I think that's partly a symbol of the sort of depression that a lot of these voters had with the terrible options that they had um, going into some of these Republican primaries. So uh, Romney may or may not get these folks to show up. And that matters as a swing vote as much as Ohio First Democrats or other categories of party switchers. Now, what I would further say is that for this group of voters, when politicians stand for something, that's when they show up. When they sort of try to go to the center and be a little mushy, that's when they just think everybody sounds the same. It's Democrats or Republicans. They all seem to be sounding the same. Uh, and I'll give you a couple examples. Marco Rubio in Florida, classic swing state. This guy stood for something against Charlie Crist, who is a more establishment, mushy centrist. And he turned people out and won in a swing state. Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. Here's a guy who's incredibly ideological. In fact, he would call himself a libertarian, even though he calls himself a conservative on the campaign trail. Uh, you've heard him use that word libertarian himself. In Pennsylvania, which actually leans Democrat, and he stood for something. And voters, like uh, Tea Party voters, came out in droves, and he won. Uh, so it's sort of dangerous that Romney is trying to tack more towards these moderate Democrat kind of folks in Ohio versus trying to stand for something and could perhaps win by, um, by turning out some of those Tea Party folks. Okay, and then the final point I wanted to make was about the no labels movement. Because um, I think it's actually little more than aspirational marketing. Uh, I don't know if you guys know what uh, aspirational marketing, it's been a, it's been a big um, uh, kind of buzzword in the marketing community. And it's basically... Um, you know, appeal to your customers' deepest wants and desires, even if you actually don't have a product to kind of offer. Uh, my favorite example of this is uh, Subaru's campaign for uh, partially zero emission vehicles. Have you seen this? Oh, it just cracks me up. So on the back of our back station wagons, they put partially zero. 
partially zero emissions from, from your Subaru. Now, if you stop to think about that more than two seconds, it's complete nonsense. Subaru doesn't have a zero emissions vehicle. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't exist in the marketplace. Nobody does. But what they're trying to do is kind of tug at the heartstrings of Subaru drivers everywhere who want to have that zero emissions vehicle so they can put the sea kayak on the top of their car or chuck their mountain bike in the back and drive into nature with zero emissions. It's sort of the deepest aspirational desires of a Subaru driver. But partially zero, partially zero. What if you went into the bank and you asked the bank teller, I'd like to withdraw partially zero for my uh, checking account. What, what dollar amount would they give you? Because like half of zero is zero. I mean, it just makes no sense. Um, and so this no labels movement, I kind of think of as the partially zero equivalent to ideology. You know, David Brooks and David Fromm and Michael Bloomberg got together and they said, wouldn't it be great if we had no ideology? <laughs> Absolutely none at all. Uh, bipartisanship would be gone. Wow, that would be terrific. That, that gets at my deepest aspirations, my hopes, my wants, desires. But that product doesn't exist in the marketplace. There is no such thing as this happy unicorn land where nobody has ideology or nobody has uh, partisanship. Because what would the nonpartisan solution look like to something like entitlement reform? What would the nonpartisan solution look like to healthcare reform? The reason why these things are so naughty is because they tug at the deepest desires of voters and they actually disagree with each other about it. And in fact, if you looked at independent voters, you looked at Tea Party voters in particular, they have very strong opinions about this. The reason why we can't come to an agreement is because we actually have disagreements. So this kind of papering over the disagreements in search of kind of these um, uh, no labels movements, uh, I don't think are getting much traction because when you look under the surface, there really isn't much there. It's sort of partially zero. Um, so in conclusion, uh, let me just say that uh, I really did enjoy the book. Uh, she found some of the voters out there in the real flesh and bud that David Bose and I have been looking at in, our, in the data sets for at least the last five years. Uh, I think the Tea Party should be an important part of this story. Uh, I think the Tea Party may well be one of the key swing votes, and uh, I don't suspect that uh, David Walker or Michael Bloomberg jumping in as an independent are going to get much traction, uh, whether they call themselves no labels or otherwise. Uh, thank you, and look forward to the discussion. <laughs>